Blessings to all of you. That, that uh, painting that, as you know, we're starting into our trek towards Easter and the celebration of what Jesus did for us on the cross and his resurrection. And the way that we're going to approach it this year is through the lens of the Last Supper, which is really a perfect lead-in because everything that Jesus did on that final night, the night of his betrayal, and where he was taken and ultimately arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, really begins here in this very intimate setting that we often call the, the Lord's Supper. And of course, the most famous painting uh, of the Lord's uh, Supper, the Last Supper, has to do with da Vinci's you know, uh, portrayal of it. And that was actually, I think, in the foyer when you walk through, there's a rendering of that. But the one that we selected actually to sort of utilize as our primary sort of picture of this was uh, Tintoretto's painting. Uh, the reason this is in an interesting rendition of the Last Supper as you kind of notice, they did some things with it on the bumper. But uh, it really carries with it something of a, of a, of a portrayal of, that there's more going on than just flesh and blood, that there's something of an element in the spiritual realm that is actually also equally as compelling. And so that so many of the movements that we're going to look at, actually there's something more going on behind the scenes or in the area. And that's, I think the painting captures some of that. Of course... What we did uh, is we put a couple of different, and this is obviously a rendering from a, a European perspective. I think this was 16th century. Um, I believe they still have the original in Venice. But there were different, we just put different portrayals, the Last Supper, that there's been numbers of them. And even on the back wall, it's very interesting to kind of take a peek at different ones because they all showcase things in a slightly different way. And periodically, you'll you find yourself looking for, oh, I, there's that disciple, or there's this one, and where's Judas? He's usually... Everybody looks for Judas usually when you look at the Last Supper, and there's usually little clues. You know, he's got the money bag or something, and you secretly see. It's, it's, it's interesting to uh, look at it. But um, we're going to, again, just focus on this, uh, the, the primary center of our text, and we're looking at what the Bible says, not at historical fiction. We really want to try to get into this idea um, of what actually happened on that night according to the Scriptures. And the goal would be to both understand it in more vivid ways and then also to apply it to our lives so that we learn the crucial lessons that were given to us by Jesus that I think are as applicable today in the year in which we are now living as followers, those of us who would follow Jesus and be his disciples, these lessons are as absolutely meaningful for us now as they were when they were first given. And there were some powerful things that happened. Now, we're just going to start by looking at the first verse. And it says here that before the feast, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. Now, one of the things that we notice immediately here is we're given a clue that this is not just any day. Uh, the day that we have here is the, the Passover day, and the Passover was a feast. Now, I'm not necessarily assuming that everybody has an idea of the Passover and what, what it was. I mean, I know some, pe some people grew up celebrating. Um, if you came from a Jewish heritage, you would have celebrated the Passover. Jesus certainly did. His disciples did from the day they were born, really. They were participants at some level in this feast. The fact is, this is a remarkable uh, point in the history of Israel. If you were to read the Older Testament, one of the things, and some of us are aware of this just because, you know, we 
maybe we've seen the Ten Commandments or something, but if you've actually had a chance to read the Older Testament, which anyone who's sincere about doing this right, it's helpful to do so and, and extraordinarily meaningful. Um, it illuminates so much of what happens in the ministry of Jesus and in the New Testament that to actually read, and this is a total sidelight note, but to actually read the New Testament without having it illuminated by the older is to miss a significant part of what it was meant to do. And in fact, you will find, if you go back into the Older Testament, Jesus is all over it. And there are types and shadows everywhere, and only examples of how God's dealing with his people, but indications of a coming Messiah and what he's going to look like. The fact is that Passover was that special feast. It was probably the greatest feast of all Israel. Uh, because it was a glorious feast. It was a birthday feast. It was like the birth of a nation. I mean, they were in, enslaved in Egypt. Many of us know this, that they were in bondage to Pharaoh's rule. A Pharaoh who knew not Joseph uh, had risen up, and over a number of years the people had grown numerically, but they had also grown to a point where they had been enslaved. And, of course, God raised up a deliverer. He was a reluctant deliverer. He studied the life of Moses. He realized that Moses was not... Um, you know, he didn't apply for the position. It sort of came to him. As usually, that's how it is with God. Usually, those who are most ambitious of things get bypassed, and those who tend to be reluctant uh, tend to get asked to do something, and uh, along the way, God grows them to do it. And so Moses is brought to a point where he's willing to cooperate with the Lord. He ends up going, and um, he challenges Pharaoh. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here except to say that they were told through a series of escalating events the pressure is being applied on Pharaoh, that God wants him to let the people go. Finally, there's a final, what's called the final plague, a final movement of God, where the Lord says there's going to come, and he called it an angel of death. There's going to come something that's going to visit, something from the spirit realm is going to visit. And he said, what I want you to do, this is an interesting instruction. He says, I want you to take a lamb, and I want that lamb to be slain, and I want you to take the blood of that lamb. And again, these are foreign things to us, but he says, I want you to put the blood on the doorposts and on the lentil. And when the death angel comes, it will pass over wherever the blood is. And it will not pass over that where the blood is not. And of course, this becomes, this moment breaks Pharaoh's will temporarily, and he finally relents and lets Israel go. They are delivered out of Egypt. They are let go because of the, of the death that came and it passed over them, hence Passover, because, again, you can't miss it, the lamb's blood on the door. And, of course, the lamb is central. He says from this point on, and you can, I put the little verses there in Exodus 12. I'm not going to read them necessarily just for us to look at later. But he says from that point on, and this, by the way, he says, I want you to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a continual reminder every year of how God delivered you with a mighty hand and out of Egypt and out of bondage and brought you into life, into a place of promise. And again, the lamb is central to that. And every year they were to do this. And by the way, that predates even the giving of the law on Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and all the other details. This feast is unlike any other feast that Israel celebrated. It was centered around, and this is important for where we're going, in Easter and in the cross, a lot of people don't see the connection, that Everything about the feast of Passover was centered around the lamb. And the lamb is a big part. You eat the lamb. It's a, it's, there's a lamb in the celebration itself, in the ceremony itself. And this idea of a lamb 
And the idea of a, of a lamb being slain and the blood and bringing life and allowing death to pass. Think about it. When Jesus, they were in many ways a nation who were, were in the, a fellowship of the lamb, as it were. And you read this, and it changes your perspective when you start reading through the Older Testament because all of a sudden you come to a passage like Isaiah 53, and you begin to realize that this Messiah is going to be a lamb slain. And then, of course, the designation that John the Baptist uses, the first description of Jesus when he begins his ministry is anything but what we would have expected. It's not, there he is, the Son of God. There he is, the King of Kings. The first thing that John the Baptist says to usher in the ministry of Jesus is, behold, in John 1, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, not just of a nation, but of a world. And again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The whole idea of a slain lamb connects us to an understanding of a cross. Jesus would give his life to be that lamb that really, the lamb foreshadowed the ultimate giving of one who would give himself as, a, as the sacrifice for all of us. So to really appreciate the cross, which people wear it around their necks all the time, well, what does it mean? Why is this, this is all this blood talk? And, and all, what it has to do, it's very deeply rooted. In fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you'll see that even when Adam and Eve, in their failure, that they are covered, there is a, there is a, a, a covering that is given. An animal is, is, is killed, and they are given the clothes to cover them in their nakedness. At the beginning, there was a shedding of blood all the way through. And the Passover was a celebration of the covering that was being, in a sense, an anticipation of the ultimate sacrifice that would be given by God to give us life. Now, that, bear that in mind because that illuminates everything else that is going on here. There's no question that when Jesus walked up and saw that this Passover, he, this meal that he was celebrating with his disciples, he knew that it was going to be different than any other one that had ever been. He knew that everything that had been foreshadowed in it was about to be fulfilled in this very hour. He understood that that roasted lamb, that when he walked up the steps and through the Jerusalem streets and up the steps in that upper room that had been already prepared by the two disciples that he had sent ahead, Peter and John, and they had laid everything out, the tables were set as it were, that he understood, that no question to me, when he saw that lamb, you, you, what, did he know at that hour that he did but that was everything he was meant to do, to be and become. Notice, go on with me here in, in the first verse. It says that when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the, the enemy, the devil, had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now, again... What do, you, what do you see in those three verses? You look closely at those front three verses that open this whole thing up. It's a picture of Jesus who is fully aware of things. This is no hapless victim making his way to, you know, some ignominious death who's some just caught up in a movement he can't control. I mean, one of the first things that's being clearly stated out here is Jesus is extraordinarily aware, acutely aware of the details of what is happening. He knows, for example, three things are mentioned initially right away. He knows that his hour is at hand. What is the hour? Whenever the Bible talked about the hour, it was referring to the moment of Jesus' death. He says, for this hour I was born, he tells Pilate. He, he talks about it. He talks about how when they were trying to kill him and there were people who were coming after him, 
and, and there was a, a group that wanted to put it to, really to murder him. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Basically, the time of my death is not now. So it, the hour was all, he was always talking about the hour as his appointed time, the reason for which he was born. Really, the hour represents the cross. And when you hear a phrase, and you'll read this, if you read the Gospels, you'll see this phrase that comes up. It's called, uh, it'll say something like, the kingdom of God is at hand. You'll see it. Like, it's like God's doing a new thing, and the way the Bible says, and he's, whenever it uses the phrase at hand, it means now. What is at hand? Look at my hand. It's like near me, near. My hand is near, at hand, right now, in this hour. The kingdom of God is present among you. It is at hand. It is in the now. Jesus is saying, this is my hour at hand. It is coming. Everything that I was born to do is now at hand. This very hour, this Passover, this last Passover, this hour is at hand. My death is now. The time is now. And he says that he knows also that his departure is soon to come, that he will return to the Father and leave this world. It also says that he's aware of a number of other things, doesn't it, as well? He's aware that there's a traitor in his midst. He already knows what's going on. He knows the avenue in which it's going to take place. He knows that it's one of his own. He understands that. From, a, from his perspective, he sees it all. But from a human perspective, on the side of the disciples, everything is still an action of free will. And you will, we will find that in the course of this Last Supper, Jesus is reaching out to Judas still. There is something about it. It says he knows other things as well. He knows, for example, it says here that he is loved and that he loves, that his love will abide to the utmost, that having loved them, he loved them unto the end. It's a beautiful phrase, very poetic. What is it saying? His love completes. He is committed in his love. We live in an age where love is often defined purely in the form of either romantic or fluctuating feelings. Therefore, when I stop feeling in love with you, I am no longer committed to you. But the love of Jesus was, was stood above the, the ground floor of feeling. It was connected to the higher level, the gape love, as it's called in the Greek, godly love, which has to do with commitment. It's superior in this regard. It finishes what it starts. It completes. It commits. It follows through. It is not dependent on the fickle feelings or the changing feelings. It finishes it. He says, having loved them, notice, what does it say? He loved them unto what? The end. He finishes. His love is a love that finish, finishes. And part of it is knowing, his, knowing that one of his own is going to betray him. Knowing, Listen, there is so much stuff going on here. It says that he, know, he knows who he is and where he's going. The reason he can move through this and the reason we move through things is when we know who we really are, we can move through things. Even though everything's falling apart, when we know, he, knew who he, he knew he had come from the Father, and he knew he was going to the Father. He knew, who he, he knew why he had come. And so everything else, as it starts to melt down, and it's going to melt down, he makes his way to the place he was supposed to go from the beginning. Now is the time. This is the hour. Very powerful when you see the setting. One of the other things that we note here, and I put this... Uh, on the quote section of your handout, because I think it's helpful to just sort of understand what it would have looked like. Part of what I want us to do in these few weeks leading up to Easter is as we dig into this to kind of get a different picture in our mind of what it actually must have looked like. Because frequently I think our conception of the Last Supper is really uh, dependent on a kind of art, Western art 
uh, presentation of the Last Supper. I mean, we see Jesus sent, sit, sitting, like this is the typical perception would be right, Leonardo da Vinci's Last, and I, don't, I understand that. I mean, that's what I thought it always, for years, that that's how it was. Jesus there on a table about this high, he's sitting there, and he's got disciples on each side, and, and one of them's lifting his hand this way, and there's different pictures, and, and we just kind of have the arrangement in our mind, and it looks good, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong, wrong with that rendering. It's just an interpretation. It's the most famous of all the interpretations, but it's part of a perspective, and art gives us that degree of license to, sh to look at something from a perspective, but I wouldn't say it's exactly accurate in what it would have looked like, and part of what I want us to do is based upon the knowledge that we have from how things would have been set up in that time frame to get a better idea of what it would have looked like. And so, notice this, notice this statement by Meyer. It says, on the table, if you were to walk into this room, on the table there was bread and wine and water and herbs, and on the side table the roasted lamb, and the swinging lamps were aglow above, and below, around the table, there were 13 couches. Now, when we think of a couch, let's not think of um, like a sofa that we're sitting back on, kind of reclining on, like a big thing that, you know, is just kind of there. I don't think that, that's not what they mean by a couch. It's actually talking about something that would have looked more like a, um, like a, a mat with pillows. And one of the things that is different is we know that there was uh, a low-lying table, probably yay high, this high, certainly not this high with chairs around it, that there would have been a table, probably a rectangle table, that would have come here and it would have come here. It might have been oval, but most likely a rectangle table. And then in the, the two-thirds of the table is covered with this cloth where the food and, and utensils were placed. And then there's another third of it where things were removed. And we know that these 13, I want you to think of a station, think of it as a, as a station, or a, the couch would have been a place um, where they each would have had their sort of space with their own reclining pillow. And typically, and what you would do is, is that they would recline on their left hand. I can't do it right here completely, but you, get, you can get the idea. And as you're reclining with your feet behind you, you would then eat with your right hand, and you would talk and fellowship and participate. So you're leaning down, and you're just kind of you're eating in a very casual fashion, your feet behind you, and there are 13 places around this uh, table that would have been set up. There would have been one, two, and three kind of stations, and then five, six, and seven, and eight. So basically, you've got five on each side of the U, and then three in the middle. Now, historically, again, nobody's sitting up. D Jesus... There's a debate here, and, and uh, nobody really knows for sure who was sitting where. Some people say Jesus was, as the host, in the center of the U, and the position of honor was next to him on the right, and then there was another honorable place on his left. But others, such as a, a man named Alfred Eidersheim, who's considered a, a very good scholar on this issue, a man of Jewish heritage as well, and a Christian scholar of the 19th century, he talks about how, in his opinion, Jesus was actually on the right-hand side at the end of the U, the place of honor, and that that honorable place would have been to his right at the end of the table and the left over to here. So whether Jesus was here on the place second to last as the host or whether he was over here in the middle, it's hard to know. But what we do know is a couple of different things that were happening that evening. We know that when they walked in, they were hardly all in a good mood. We know they had been arguing. Even though Peter and John were already away, they had actually been part of it. Part of it. We know from Luke's account that this was not harmonious and peaceful, that there were ill feelings actually prevailing in the group. 
that there were, as the scripture would call it, contentions taking place. That they had been talking about who was going to actually get the favored status when Jesus came into his kingdom. Why was this one being favored over this one? Who was more meaning? In fact, it was being talked about. It says, it says that these men were arguing over who would be the, considered the greatest among them. There was arguments happening about relative greatness and who prevailed in terms of their roles. And uh, I'm just, what I'm trying to say is there was this atmosphere of competition and rivalry that was a big part of what happened that night. When they came into it, it could have only been exasperated by the fact that not only did you have this sort of argument that had been brewing for days that Jesus was aware of, but when they came in, you can only imagine another, another issue that would have arisen naturally was who is going to sit where? Because there are places that are more honored. It's you say, well, this doesn't happen. It happens all the time today. You think about it, you go to, we go to a banquet or something. We, I mean, there might be a, a dinner in someone's honor. There are people, there might be a place where there's officials there, there's a dignitary or something that's coming. There are places where people who are given, in fact, the Pharisees, Jesus would have interactions with the Pharisees all the time. He says, you guys are always worried about where you're going to sit. This comes up a lot in, in the Gospels. He says, you're worried about where you're going to sit. Why do you always try to, why are you always so concerned about being the most honored? And this was what his disciples, they also thought in terms of greatness, proximity, who gets to sit where, who's closest to Jesus, who's more favored, why is he more favored than me, why is this happening? Now, I don't think they had names, by the way, on the, on the table. Like, you sit here and you sit here, although I wouldn't put it past Peter to do it. But nonetheless, there, there is this sense that that would be taken care of. You would kind of find your place, but there was clearly a sense that you had to be asked to sit next to Jesus, and, and what was that going to look like? Those things up and this was going, this was a backdrop. Also, one other thing that was happening, we know this, is that the room was filled with a very unusual odor. It was the mixture of beautiful food, herbs and lamb and such, and also the smell of men who had dirty feet <laughs> and who had walked through the streets of Jerusalem and had not bothered to do what was customary when you came into a house to have a feast like this. It was because in those days, they did not have shoes that covered their entire foot. They had sandals. It was essentially a piece of leather with a strap over it. And all of them, what was customary is when you came into a house, typically if it was a house of someone who was at least moderately wealthy, there would be a servant there. Your feet would be washed. In the absence of such a servant, the other thing would happen is someone would take the duty of the servant and begin to wash the feet of everybody. And maybe there would be some turns that were taken. But it was understood that you would do that in this case, there clearly was no servant presently there for when they arrived. And because of the atmosphere that was there, none of them felt compelled to take the role of the servant and go ahead and wash the feet of their, or even offer. There were no offers made. I'll do it. Nothing. No one decided to take that role on. Do you know why? Because the spirit in the air was fractious. It was divided and it was disunified. And you understand, Jesus is seeing, seeing everything. Here he is, his hour at hand, the culmination moment. Think about this for a moment. Here he is with all this on him, the weight of the world, no hapless victim, but a willing participant in a divine love story that will cost him everything and gain him even more. And here he is with the, literally the weight of the world on him, 
and here are his group of men that he's been mentoring, apprentices. And what, and what are they doing? In his final hour, when he needs them more than ever to show up, they're arguing and competing and trying to battle out and mad and angry and different feelings. Are go- this room is filled with fracture. It is not unified. It is not a humble place. It is not what we call sacred. It feels disconnected. It feels incongruent with the master's heart. I mean, Jesus is seeing what's happening. Not only that, you've got one who's already on his way to betraying. He's already started the negotiations. Jesus is aware of that. On top of it, he's got all his other disciples kind of battling it out, ill feelings here, dividing off into this group. He's saying, wow, what is... And this, this is happening. And it says that as he gets to a point in the Last Supper where, where there is this moment in the Passover where there's a shift. There are different shifting points in the Passover. It says that Jesus did something that initially would have totally caught everybody off guard. I have no, it's very possible he, he was listening to them, and he could tell. He was listening to them argue. He was listening to them talk about things. And, and clearly nobody had bothered to even wash the feet. Remember, those feet are behind them, right? They're reclining their feet. Those dirty feet are all back there, and nobody's bothered to wash them. And, and it says that Jesus, and I don't think he got up and said, okay, everybody, let me show you what I'm going to do. I don't think he did that at all. Jesus, I think, very casually and calmly at a time when it would have been least noticed, rises up, we're told in verse 4, I believe, rises up and he puts the garment aside that he had been wearing and he cloaks himself with a towel that would have been characteristic of a servant. And here, what he does, and we don't know who the first person's feet he washed, but while they're arguing and divided, he stoops down, grabs the basin and the towel, strips himself to the point where his garment is off, and tradition says, Peter, we don't know. But as they're talking and arguing and whatever else they're doing, he starts to silence the room as one by one they're noticing something that seems absolutely unbelievable for their perspective. Because Jesus is sitting there and he's beginning to wash the feet of his disciples. In this servantless situation, while everybody's arguing about who's the greatest, he takes the basin and the towel. Now you think about it. The Son of God washing feet. The Son of God washing feet. They're arguing. And he begins to wash the feet. One by one, he washes them all. There's so much for us here. Let me just leave you with these things. I'm going to suggest that we have a Savior, number one, who is utterly devoted to us. Utterly devoted to us. Just put that up. He is devoted to us in both the great and in the small. In the great, he is going to give his life. He is going to die. He is going to fulfill the purpose for which he has come, the sinless one who knew no sin becomes sin, that we might be made right in God. He who is rich becomes poor, that we who are poor may be made rich. It's all over the scriptures. That nothing we could ever do could earn this love. It is a gift from God. That's why we call it grace. Nothing I do is good enough to earn it. 
I receive it or reject it, but I not earn it. He's going to die. That's great. That's, he will give, listen, he will give his life as the lamb so that death will pass over us. And as many as received him, John says, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God and daughters of God, as it were, the children of God. That's the great, but you know what most affects me? I, I love God for that. But I'm also reminded that he's not only devoted to us in the great, he's devoted to us in the small. And that's evidenced by in the middle of all this big stuff, movements, history, eternity, death, big, big movements of God and the Spirit, more than we'll ever know, in the middle of all that, in the middle of that hour, he can stop what he's doing, pull out of it, and get down on his feet and knees with a towel and take the lowest place in the room and wash the feet, the grimy, stinky, dirty feet. And I'm reminding you of myself, Lord, there are times when, honestly, we do not expect you to wash our feet. We have a Savior. It's not just them. He'll wash. He washes our feet. He washes our feet. And the times when we feel least worthy of it, when we're most further, we're far away from where we should be, or very, very much aware of how much we don't deserve it. It's in that place when our attitude's been wrong, what we've been doing's been wrong, we're ashamed of what we've been doing, I don't know, whatever else is causing that to be the way that it is. And in the middle of all that, it's a reminder to me that Jesus will come and he will minister to us in our worst places, in our dirtiest places, in the places where we are least deserving. So you can't go, and that's what Peter's going to do. He's gonna, we're going to see it next week. You can't do that. You let me do this. And he washes our feet. And he loves us in our mess. And that's what a Savior. If you've ever felt like you shouldn't be loved because of something we've done or how we've let God down, let us remember this. There is nothing too dirty for him to come into and cleanse. It's a gift. Now, what, the, what should that motivate us to do? It should cause us, and we'll call this the second idea, it should cause us then to be careful about having a spirit of competition and rivalry ourselves where we're always, let us not be the kind of people who are worried about this person's blessing and what am I getting and am I being noticed or why am I not being given attention or why are they being noticed, given attention. Forget all that stuff. You know what? Who cares who's sitting where on the table? Let us be thankful that we have a seat at the table. It doesn't matter. God didn't do this for me. Why did he do it for her? What's this and what's that? Or why is the, why are, the fear? Forget taking offense. Quit, let us quit worrying about what somebody else is being blessed with or why that's happening or get angry at this or offended at that or whatever. Come on. That's what he's saying. Look, and this is our, the last idea. What he is showing us is an example of what it means to serve. And we'll call that our third piece here. He models for us the idea of what it means to be a people who serve. That we too are called to get down, as it were, and to give our life back uh, to him in some way. And I don't know what that always looks like. I don't know. Maybe this Easter season 
is a time where the Lord will ask some of us to walk, and I don't mean this literally, but there might be a sense that he's asking us to wash someone's feet. Say, well, they don't deserve it. But he who was great came and modeled for us what it means to love and to serve and to give ourselves away. And in Jesus, we see an example that greatness has a willingness to serve and to bless. That at the end of the day, it's not so much about what we get as much as it's about what we give. And I'm talking about what we can give to others in his name. And it may cost us something, but he did it for us. How much more can we do it for him? And I pray that we would be moved around that. And I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like, but there might be things that God asks from us to do. When we serve, can we serve? Well, I, I don't have the time to do that, or I don't care. Let somebody else do it. I don't, no one notices that thing anyway. Well, who, is someone going to serve? Do we really believe that the Lord notices things, little things, obscure things, modest things? He's great! But he'll get down on his knees and wash somebody's feet. Powerful stuff. Lord, we... Uh, we think about what it means to rise up as you rose from the table and then went down low. And there are times, Lord, when you call us out to move into something you have for us, Lord. And I don't know, maybe this Easter season is the right time for us to think about what sacrificial love looks like in an era of selfish love, in an era of meisms. Teach us, Lord, a little bit more of what it means to give our life away in your name. And maybe in the big picture, we'll never be asked, I'm sure of it, to do what you were asked to do. But in small ways, Lord, maybe in ways when we're being asked to commit to something and we don't want to do it. Um, or we want to do it, but only on our terms. Or when we're offended, and so we're going to use that offense to justify why we won't respond. Or Lord, maybe when we just feel like we don't have anything left in us to give away and to be a blessing. I pray that you would help us, Lord, in this season to listen for your voice and to be a responsive people, to rise up and give our love away. This is a gift that you've given to us, the gift of knowing you. We never could earn it, and we are keenly aware of sometimes how dirty our feet really are, how, how far we fall from the mark, and yet you stoop to woo, to win, to love our soul, and you... You wash my feet, and I, am thank I thank you for it, Lord. You wash our feet. Help us to be a people who walk in your humility and are open to loving others and one another in your name. And I pray this, to you, Lord. Bless these closing minutes of ours here now, Lord, as we let this word settle in. And even in the passion of this last song, Lord, let it be a reminder to us to rise up and give our life to you in meaningful ways, in relational ways, Lord. So bless our time of giving. Bless these closing minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.